Reeves ordination. Of course, Bill and Dick Wick and all these uh, dear friends are, are in, uh, in that picture, and I see it often. It's really wonderful to, uh, to be with you. And though I've not been here since Mark's ordination, actually ever since Mark came, well, actually before that, I prayed for this work and have prayed even much more for it. Mark and I keep in touch, and so I feel very uh, involved with you as we um, get to have this time uh, together. A couple of of, uh, explanations of what I'm going to try to do. The, the first couple of handouts, I'm sorry, they're probably a bit more cumbersome than what you needed. But uh, as I was trying to get them done, I was having trouble with outlining and everything else. So, um, But the, it'll be extra stuff for you if you want to follow up on things. Second, if you'll get your, you're going to need your Trinity Psalter. We know we're not going to sing. Uh, but in the back is the Confession of Faith and Larger Catechism, which we're going to use a good bit. And so not only will you have it written down for you, but if you want to, you can actually follow the text as we deal with that. Third, uh, what I'm going to try to do, we want to stick to the schedule. So I'm going to try to stop uh, at about a quarter past ten and leave a time for questions, hopefully answers. Uh, That was a joke. Wake up, folks. (laughs) Uh, and uh, then we'll also, during that time, you can take whatever kind of break you need, and we'll start right back then at uh, 10.30. Try to do the same thing uh, before lunch. Try to stop it after about 45 minutes and leave time. So that way, be thinking about your questions. We'll stick to the schedule, um, and we can try to do, do that after each uh, lecture. So as we begin, let's read Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 17. I'm going to pray after I read. Is that okay? You want me to pray first? Okay. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because he rested from all his work which God had created and made. This is the account of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth. No plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust uh, from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. There he placed the man whom he had formed out of the ground. The Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed 
out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Let us pray. O holy God in heaven, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we bless you that you're the God who is living, alone God, a great God, incomparable God. We thank you that though you dwell in um, a great mystery, light unapproachable, that you have condescended, Lord, to uh, come down to us and speak to us uh, by your word, to quicken us by your spirit on the basis of the work of the incarnate Son, that we might learn to know you and think your thoughts after you. As we come, Lord, to uh, work through this most glorious uh, truth of Scripture, that which binds the entirety of the Bible together, that which should shape our lives, we ask that your Spirit will come and be merciful and enlighten our understanding and help us, Lord, to uh, grasp and remember and respond. And we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, there, are the handouts that have been made available? Well, they appear still. Got them in the back. Okay. So uh, at least a handout per family. You might open your uh, confession in the back. Uh, two page. Nine twenty three, and then larger catechism, uh, which is really easy to uh, to get to around the twenties as well. All right. So as we begin our discussion of the covenant, let me just read. Uh, are you read with me uh, this definition of covenant that we have in Confession of Faith seven one? The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, by which he has been pleased to express by way of covenant. So in background, what this is expressing is because God is infinite, uh, majestic, incomprehensible, that if he had not taken the initiative to open himself up unto us and then bring us into relationship with him, we would be at sea. Uh, We would not know him, and we would have no blessedness. But, of course, we know that God made us in his image so that we could commune with him. That was part of the very plan of creation. So... The way, then, that this infinite God comes to us is by way of covenant, which is what we're going to be thinking about now in these uh, next uh, hours um, together. So we're going to do five things, Lord willing, uh, four 
lectures today, one lecture on the Lord's Day at Sunday school time. We're going to look at the covenant of works first, where we are now, then the covenant of grace defined, then the unity of the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace and the sacraments. So those will be the four things by God's will that we'll do today. And tomorrow morning we'll look at the covenant of grace and the church. It's very important because we often think of the church as kind of an afterthought, when in fact what I hope to show you is that it is actually part of God's eternal uh, covenant plan. Now, the covenant is the way by which God has progressively revealed himself to us through Scripture. And so it's very important that we realize this. This is what ties Scripture together. I think it's what ties the confession of faith together. Covenant theology or federal theology. Now, in the Bible, we have two covenants. We have the covenant of works, which we're going to examine now by God's grace, and we have the covenant of grace, which we'll look at the rest of our sessions together. A little background. Uh, in the Old Testament, the term that's used for covenant, it's in your notes, bereath, is used 280 times. Uh, it's used for natural ordinances, so God speaks of his covenant with the day and the night, something that he's established by creation. It's used for human agreements, Abraham, Abimelech, and uh, Isaac, and Abimelech, and Jacob, and Laban, and others. It's used for men with God at times of covenant renewal, but its primary use is God making covenant with his people. So we have the, uh, the word mentioned, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and of course, the new covenant. So we can see through pervasive use of this term that it is a very important concept in the Old Testament. Another part of the term, when you read in your Bibles that God made a covenant, the primary Hebrew word that's used is cut. Cut a covenant. And when we get to the covenant of grace, I'll try to unpack that for you a bit more. Now, the Old Testament Hebrew was translated uh, into a Greek uh, in what is called the Septuagint. And in the providence of God, he used the Septuagint to uh, prepare a number of classical Greek terms for uh, the New Testament. So in the Septuagint, the word that was used to translate bereath covenant is not the classical Greek term that one would expect. That word would simply mean a mutual contract, soon uh, and it would give the idea of just uh, two parties coming alongside and, and working on a, on a contract. No, the, the Septuagint used a different word, diatithemi, and diatithemi means uh, a sovereign appointed, actually it can be used of a testament, something that is unbreakable, something that is inviolable. That then is the word that is used uh, in the New Testament to explain covenant, um, 33 times the noun is used. We also have the verb itself to make a covenant or a will. Now, in chapter uh, 7, uh, paragraph um, 4, this covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of testament in reference to death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and their everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. We'll come back to that, but this is the idea. It's something that through which uh, an inheritance is bequeathed to others. We'll unpack that under the, the covenant 
of grace. So a covenant itself, I define a covenant, if you flip over now the next page, a sovereignly administered bond with stipulations and sanctions. A sovereignly administered bond with stipulations and sanctions. Sovereignly administered. It is of the initiative of God. Bond. The sense by which God binds himself uh, to his people, binds us to him. And then stipulations mean that there are requirements, uh, both on God's part and on our part. And sanctions mean that there's going to be rewards or punishments. So a sovereignly administered bond with stipulations and sanctions. Now, in Presbyterian churches today, the most famous definition is the one that Dr. Robertson gives, a bond and blood sovereignly administered. You can see close connections, but I don't use that definition for the covenant of works because there is the covenant itself is not based upon the shedding of blood. The covenant of grace is based upon the shedding of blood. But the covenant of works has no place in it for shedding of blood or sacrifice. So we'll work with a sovereignly administered bond with stipulations and sanctions. With respect to men, God only sovereignly promises men eternal fellowship with himself upon the fulfillment of certain conditions. So that is the general idea of covenant. That's what we uh, uh, see there uh, also in paragraph 1 of chapter 7. The great theologian Vitzius then gives this definition. A covenant of God with man is an agreement between God and man about the way of obtaining consummate happiness, the highest happiness, including a combination, which means a threat, of eternal destruction, with which the contemner, the one who despises the happiness offered in that way, is to be punished. And so it is a way of fellowship, uh, but God in that way threatens punishment, and the one who despises God's covenant is going to be punished. That's exactly what goes on now in the covenant of works. Or as uh, one writer says, there's three parts, the promise of consummate happiness, this is still Vitzius, of eternal life, that's the happiness, designation and prescription of the condition, the performance of which man acquires a right to the promise, and then a penal sanction against those who do not come up to the condition. All right, let's move now into the covenant of works, paragraph 7, chapter 7, paragraph 2. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and to him in his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. So this definition, it's a conditional covenant between God and man, whereby God commands perfection of godliness and righteousness and promises that he will be our God if we keep his commandments. On the other side, man binds himself to perform uh, entire and perfect obedience to God's law by that strength wherein God hath endured him, endued him by the nature of his first creation. So this is the first way that God came to relate to man. We'll spell this out, but he comes to Adam 
as the head of the human race. Adam, as we'll see, represents us in this covenant. But of course, when we say it's a covenant, uh, there will be those that say, well, there is no mention in Genesis 1, 2, or 3 about a covenant. The word covenant itself is not used until Genesis 6, when God uh, declares the covenant that he is making uh, with uh, Noah. So what grounds do we have? What, what right do we have to refer to this as a covenant? Well, I believe there's sufficient revelation in Scripture that we are to understand this as a covenant. In the first place, it has the marks of a covenant. You see this there on page 3. It has promise. It has the stipulation, the responsibility of uh, man. Uh, and it also has uh, sanctions and it has a sacrament, as we'll see in a bit. So it's got the marks of a covenant. So if it, uh, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, no matter what its name is, what is it? It's a duck. And this arrangement walks like a covenant, talks like a covenant, has all the characteristics of a covenant. Uh, more importantly, we know that in Romans chapter 5, 11 through 13, Paul compares uh, this covenant so that in Adam we all died. So in Christ, all those in Christ are made alive. And in 1 Corinthians 15, he again compares uh, Adam as the first head, Christ then as the second covenant head, the last man or the second Adam. Now in Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, it's actually called a covenant. Now, there's some that contest that uh, uh, translation, but it is by far uh, the most um, valid translation of what we have in Hosea 6-7. But like Adam, they've transgressed the covenant. There they've dealt treacherously against me. Now, he's indicting God's people in the northern kingdom. He compares them to Adam. Now, the footnote in the New American Standard will say, like men, but... Um, this would not be a valid because a covenant is being transgressed and uh, what Hosea is doing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit is comparing the rebellion of the northern kingdom, Israel, like the first rebellion of Father Adam. And there he transgressed uh, the covenant. Uh, we also know that... Um, Covenant is referred to uh, in Job 31, 33. Uh, at least I think it's alluded to in Job 31, uh, 33. Have I covered my transgression like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? And of course, there's a reference to what Adam did historically. Uh, when God comes to the garden, uh, Adam has clothed himself in a fig leaf and has hidden in the trees. And that seems to be an illusion here that um, uh, we're being told that, no, I was open in my confession of sin. Then there's the example of the Davidic covenant that we'll come to uh, later today in 2 Samuel 7, 23. It's not called a covenant, but this is the chapter where the covenant's made. But in Psalm 89, 3 and other verses there, it is called a covenant. So just because it's not mentioned in Genesis 2, uh, in no way would say that it's not a covenant if it's later called a covenant as it is in uh, Hosea 6. And then it did have a sacrament. It had a seal, and that is the tree of life. So it is clearly 
a covenant. We call it a covenant of works. It has other names as well, the covenant of nature, the covenant of life. Um, uh, It's called a covenant of works because that was the principle, that was the condition uh, by which man uh, was to keep uh, the covenant. But it is also a gracious covenant. Now, it's not a covenant of grace. Covenant of grace, we'll see why that's called a covenant of grace in the next hour. But it was God's grace that led him to enter into this relationship with mankind, who apart from the covenant would have no way of relating to God, would have been under God's moral uh, edicts and responsibility, always in danger of uh, falling, and then there would be no way out. There would simply be eternal damnation. But again, look at the language in uh, chapter 7, paragraph 1. In the middle of that paragraph, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. So it's called a covenant of works because the principle is at work there. But, but even there, now stop and think about it. There was nothing inherent in Adam's eating or not eating that would have merited eternal life, right? It's only because God made a covenant and graciously said, if you'll simply keep this one commandment, I will give eternal life to you and all your posterity. That in itself was an act of grace. Adam himself would have received that by faith, not saving faith, there was no need for that, but by faith, believing the promise of God and seeking to serve God accordingly. So don't get confused when we talk about a covenant of works. There's two things. The work itself never would have merited eternal life. Thus, it was an act of grace because it was God who said. It's much what you might do with your children or your grandchildren when you'll give them a reward for a job done. And they didn't do that job at adult standards. But you said, if you do this, you do it this way, I'll give you this reward. And so it's the same concept that God does then with uh, his image bearer uh, in Adam. So we call it a covenant of works. We can also call it the covenant of creation or the covenant of life because that's what it's all about. Larger Catechism 20, written in your notes, what was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created? The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his help, affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath, entering into a covenant of life with him upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and forbidding to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil (coughs) upon pain of death. Excuse me. So I start here with you what I'm calling the context of the covenant. Sometimes we think about the covenant and we divorce it from what's going on. And that's why I read Genesis 2. You'll notice in Genesis 2 that there a change takes place. We are reading in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day the Lord God made earth and heaven. Immediately we have two 
signals here, two signs on the road that something is happening different from the description of creation. The first is, this is the generation, that is called the Toledos. That phrase is Moses' way of dividing up the entire history of the book of Genesis. And it is not a recapitulation of what has been said. It's a brief summary in order to go to the next line. So here we have a transition. Why has God made this earth and placed Adam and Eve in it in the way that he did and constituted the Sabbath? Well, that's the preface. The first chapter then is all about the covenant in the Garden of Eden. So then the second thing is notice the difference. We don't talk in the Bible about earth and heaven, do we? You always read heaven and earth, even as the first half of this verse. But here is earth and heaven. There's immediately now a focus on the earth as the center of God's activity. (coughs) Then we're explained the nature of the earth, probably even the nature of the garden that God was going to uh, uh, create, and the creation of man whom he placed into that garden. So it picks up two facts out of the uh, first uh, six days recorded in Genesis 1. There's going to be a special place, and there's going to be a special inhabitant. And so um, we read of the, of the inhabitant in verse 7. He made man. In verse 8, he planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and he placed man whom he had formed. So when I talk about context, you understand that's all flowing out of what Moses, by inspiration, is doing in this chapter. He's setting a context for this covenant of works. You know, we're tempted to think, well, that's not really fair that I was damned because Adam disobeyed. But that's why I want you to think about the context. And then you have to ask yourself the question, would I really even have done as well as Adam had done? First, think about the place uh, and the way that God describes the place. This is a a garden designed by the greatest landscape architect ever. And my wife and I enjoy going to gardens. And we've seen some, some fantastic gardens, and some of you have as well. Um, and they fill you with wonder and, 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 and the beauty uh, that God made. But can you imagine a, a garden landscape by God? <laughs> what beauty that is. What rest. Uh, what just complete environment of, of contemplation and rest and, and peace. And, and then it was a, a bountiful place. It's described in terms of its wealth, which would have meant nothing to Adam. But from Moses' perspective, he wanted the people to understand, look, this was no, no barren place. Um, and uh, water. Did you notice that this doesn't happen? You have one river making four. That's not what happens, is it? No, the, the Missouri River and the Ohio River come together to make the Mississippi River. Mississippi River doesn't make them. And that's just a way of saying the abundance of this, of this spring that flows up from the mountain there in the Garden of Eden is so profuse in God's abundance that you actually get four rivers made out of it. Now, obviously, the earth has changed uh, since that, and so we really only know the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, but this is what the wind like probably from the 
perspective of Moses and the children of Israel. Uh, or it could have actually have been what it would have been like before the flood. I don't know. But it's an amazing place, isn't it? But then what makes the place even more amazing in all this beauty is this was God's temple. This is where God came to meet with Adam and Eve. Now, you know that when it says it comes in the cool of the day, but there's also um, a, a word up here when it said that he placed man in the garden in verse 15 um, and commanded him to cultivate it, which we understand he's to, he's to farm it, and to keep it. Now, the word keep it is used for the work of the priest in the Old Covenant. So what we have here in this beautiful landscaped garden is, in fact, the temple of God, where God himself would come and commune with Adam and Eve. And they, Adam had this responsibility then as God's first priest to keep the garden, not just physically, but to keep the garden and promote godliness uh, within it. So the garden, you see, that is this glorious context of, of this arrangement that God has made uh, with man. Couldn't have been in a better place. And then God gave man the Sabbath, as we read in Larger Catechism 20. And the Sabbath itself was the structuring of the communion that God would have with his people. And notice this is a creation ordinance. This is not a uh, something added later uh, for uh, Israel in particular as, as New Covenant Baptists in particular are teaching today. No, this is a creation ordinance. It's structured Adam's communion with God, just as we'll see by God's grace on the Lord's Day, it structures our communion with God as well. And But it also has a promise in it. You'll notice that it's open-ended. Uh, all the other days end with it was evening and morning. Now, there's, there's a grammatical reason why it doesn't do that. It's because those were like uh, couplets on a train, hooking the days together. We've come out of the end of the week. We don't need a couplet. But also implied uh, in God's keeping Sabbath, resting, was the offer of eternal life. As man communed with him, he had the opportunity of eternal communion with God, and thus the Sabbath is open-ended. It is the promise of eternal life. It is the structure for communion with God. God was coming now and meeting with his image bearer. And then I've already alluded to the matter of work. It was meaningful work, even though a perfect garden uh, it didn't need to be weeded, but you would prune it. You, he let man now shape it. He also gave man the responsibility of, of naming the animals, which also gets to his uh, dominion. And, of course, he gave Adam a helper, a partner in this, so he was not isolated. So all of these things are, are the context uh, in which, through which, God comes uh, to Adam and enters into uh, this covenant. Covenant self, then, one, one more thing. And then he had the law of God as well written on his heart. Now, you do too. We know that from Romans chapter 2. That's the basis of conscience. Uh, and conscience is sufficient to condemn people to hell who've never had written revelation. That's what Paul teaches there. But conscience operates because we still have a remnant of God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, written on our hearts. Adam had it perfectly. And he knew God uh, both inherently, so to speak, and we don't know what other 
spoken revelation that God gave Adam. In addition to what we have here, we have this because it is for um, our benefit. So, what I have in your notes is simply look now what God says to him in verses 16 and 17 when he put him in the garden. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So there are the terms of the covenant itself. So you'll see um, the commandment, and you see the sanction. Implied in the sanction is also, as I'll show you in a few moments, the promise of life. So that's the covenant of works, even if you read about it there in 7.2 and Larger Catechism 20. Now let's break it down a bit more. The covenant has parties. We know that God, the triune God, is the initiating party. And I want to emphasize this because Adam would have known God as the triune God. He wouldn't have not known, he would not have known God in some vague way as simply God. No. He would have known God as He is. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one who is three, the three who are one. And it's the glorious, majestic, and beautiful triune God who would have come to Adam and made covenant. Now it would be God the Son, who is the revealer of the Godhead, who would have come to Adam in the cool of the day, who would have spoken to him, uh, or at least who would have given him the commandment of the covenant. The whole triune God would have come in the cool of the day to to commune with him, and the Spirit would be working uh, in Adam in this uh, wonderful uh, manner. So that is the Godhead. Adam, then, is the other party, mankind, who has a twofold relation to the human race, both natural and federal. Natural. This is why there's so much talk today about theistic evolution and all this junk. Uh, If Adam is not the natural head of the human race with his wife Eve, then we have no hope of atonement. You need to understand that. We would not be a race. The angels have no atonement. They're a, they're a host. They're not a race. We're a race. This is why the larger catechism in 26 states this relationship of us to our parents. How is the original, how is original sin conveyed from our first parents to their posterity? Original sin is conveyed from our first parents to their posterity by natural generation. So as all that proceed from them in that way are conceived and born in sin. This is necessary for the second aspect, which I'll speak of in a moment, the federal relationship. But Adam is the fit federal head because he and Eve are the natural heads of the human race. We all are organically related uh, to them. As Paul says then in Acts chapter 17, we all come from one blood. Uh, forget this talk about races and racism. There is obviously pride and prejudice that needs to be purged uh, in our society, in our churches. But we're one race. We're different ethnicities, but we're one race. And we need to recognize that as we interact with uh, people from other backgrounds, uh, other ethnic backgrounds and whatever. Uh, we're one of the blood of Adam. We're brothers and sisters uh, uh, Humanly speaking, 
genetically speaking, and of course in the gospel, uh, we're brothers and sisters with all those who are in the communion of the saints. So Adam has this relationship, and because of this relationship, he then is the appointed federal head. Now the word federal, well look, what kind of government are we supposed to have? (laughs) A federal government. And that means we have a government that um, acts on behalf of the people. And whatever the government does, the people do. And so the word federal comes from the Latin word for covenant. And the federal head then is the appointed covenant head. Adam then was the appointed federal head of all mankind as the second person in this covenant. So what he did, he did on behalf of every one of us, every person who will ever be born and descend from him. Uh, You see this, uh, if you go back and look, or go and look at Romans chapter 5, after Paul has laid out some of the benefits of justification, he then In verse um, 12, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses. So the the law hadn't been given until Moses, so why was death in the world before the Mosaic Covenant? All sinned in Adam even those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who's a type of him who was to come. So we didn't sin in the likeness of his sin, because his sin was a representative sin. But we're sinners. But his sin is the basis of our being sinners. Larger Catechism, then 22. Did all mankind fall in that first transgression? The covenant being made with Adam as a public person, another word for federal, one acting on behalf of those entrusted to him, not for himself only, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation. And that is why our Savior was born by a virgin. Uh, He did not come from Adam by ordinary generation, so he did not have this original sin. All mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him, fell with him in that first transgression. So we, because he was our federal head, sinned uh, in Adam in his sin and thus fall under the condemnation of that sin. Now the conditions of this covenant were personal, perfect personal and perpetual obedience. So it had to be personal. Adam had to do this uh, himself. It's a requirement of all of Adam's descendants that we all obey and um, it um, must be a perfect obedience. So Leviticus 18.5 repeats this, and we'll come to that uh, later uh, today. Do this and you shall live. Uh, there was life that was promised there through perfect obedience. As we read in Larger Catechism 20. Forbidding him to eat of the tree of the life. We'll back up on that. Um, upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and forbidding to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. So that was the condition, perfect obedience. 
within the general context of the moral law. So it's not that uh, that uh, if Adam had broken some other commandment that uh, he would not have sinned. No, but he was keeping the moral law. It was his nature. And, and we'll see in a moment why we have then this particular probation. Uh, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God puts Adam into a probationary period. This is not something that would have gone on for a long period of time. Um, if Adam had had children and they were living righteously and he sinned, that would have brought his children in this covenant under sin. So the probation was brief by its very nature. It was a test of his will. And Adam had the ability to choose to obey God or not to obey God. So God created him with a will that was good and righteous but could change. And that, of course, is what happened. But he had full ability to obey God, and he had full power to disobey God. So the probation was good and wise that God would put him in a very brief period of time and bring him then into this temptation through the tree that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's called that, we could say, for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, it's called that because God often, it says, he, he'll test someone to know what his heart was. So when Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, God said he tested him to know his heart. Well, of course, God knew his heart. But this was a test that it might be manifested the heart of man uh, before God. But it was also the test, was Adam going to say that what God reveals to be good is good, what God says is evil is evil? Or was he going to learn experimentally that evil is what he was because he disobeyed God? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God gave Adam every other tree of the garden we read in Genesis chapter 2. This great buffet of uh, wonderful different kinds of fruit. He said, I just, this one tree, Adam, belongs to me, and you are not to eat of it. Now, what we have here is what we call a positive command. We've talked about God's moral law. The moral law of God is that which is the perfect transcript of his own nature, and we as his image bearers have that on our hearts. And it is, in fact, the revelation of how we're to respond to God and to one another. It's unchangeable. Positive law will be laws that God gave periodically through the history of redemption to govern his people. Here's the best analogy. we got a couple of little ones here. And they have some very special laws. Now, their moral law is obey your father and your mother. But what does that look like when you're two or three or when you're 18 or 19 or 20? It's very different, isn't it? So, you know, you can't play in the front yard. You don't go on the street. You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't tell a 16-year-old that, I hope. Um, you know, their laws are different. Now, the moral law has not changed. But the administration of it takes place through these laws that are to govern a person at their particular age for their protection. That's a positive law. So, I like my pork. But in the Old Covenant, pork was forbidden. That was not a moral prescription, or we couldn't eat pork today. 
But Christ, we know, and Paul made all foods clean. So it was a law to govern God's people at a particular time in their history. That's changed. So this tree, it was just a positive commandment. You need to understand this. Because Adam naturally obeyed all of the moral law. It's who he was. But his will was going to be tested now. Are you going to say yes to my commandment? Or are you going to refuse it? Uh, that's why our Savior in the garden would say three times, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And that's why our Savior went into the wilderness to be tempted uh, three times and lived by the will of God at those times as the second Adam. So Adam is being tested by this uh, positive commandment. And with that was then the threat of death, but that brings with it the promise of life. And we see that in a number of ways. I've already mentioned that the Sabbath offers life. Scripture says, do this and live, Leviticus 18.5. The tree of life itself was a declaration that God was offering life to man. And it's inferred from the threat because we know, for example, in Larger Catechism 99, as we interpret God's law, the opposite of what is commanded is forbidden. The opposite of what is forbidden is commanded. That's why our catechism has both what does the commandment require, what does the commandment uh, forbid. And so we know from these things, as well as in the expulsion then, when Adam is uh, kicked out of the garden, separated then from the life promised by the tree. And of course, Christ, our covenant head, has come to bring us life and deliver us from death, Romans five seventeen. Now this life would have been justification and adoption. It would have been full conformity to uh, the image of God. It would have been um, per- perfect, bound in perfection, never to sin, enjoying full fellowship with God and all that that entails. Now, the threat is very strong. In the Hebrew, it is um, uh, dying, you shall die. That's how it's most often translated, surely you shall die. Dying, you shall die. That's physical death which we know began, uh, it took a few uh, centuries for that decay to begin to work itself out of a, of a perfect being. But by the days of Moses now, it was down to 70 or 80 years as an average. More importantly was spiritual death. Now, the physical death is Genesis 3, um, 17. Uh, 3.19, by the sweat of your face you'll eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the soul is immortal. You saw why Adam was created. God put the special soul into him. The soul is immortal. But then the soul is spiritually dead because of the fall. So we have spiritual death, which is... Um, we won't look at it, Isaiah 52, too, a change in the habits and disposition of the soul. And the comparison is something that's dead more and more decays and rots. And the soul in the natural person is decaying and rotting, becoming more and more corrupt and, and evil. And uh, as Athanasius, I think, said, becoming a beast and not really an image bearer of God. 
So spiritually dead, that also means spiritually blind, unwilling, unable to know God, understand God, to come to God. And of course, judicially, dead, all the miseries of sin in this life, um, and then eternally the second death, which is described in Larger Catechism 29. The punishments of sin in the world to come, our everlasting separation from the comfortable presence of God, and most grievous torments in soul and body without intermission in hellfire forever. In terms of the physical judicial uh, punishments, the punishments of sin in this world, Larger Catechism 28, are either inward, blindness of mind, reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience and vile affections, outward, the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes, and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments, together with death itself. So we know then that uh, that is what was threatened in the covenant. The tree of life was then the... It was a sacrament. There was nothing magical about it. Adam could eat that. And as we talk about the sacraments later this afternoon, we'll see that this was God's uh, confirmation to him of all that he said in the covenant. And of course, Adam broke the covenant, fell into all of this sin as we did in him. Now, the effects and consequences, the, the just nature of this continues. There's no longer a way that the human race can win salvation uh, by keeping uh, perfect obedience. But you and I are bound to obey God perfectly. God hasn't changed. We're bound to obey God perfectly. Uh, And if we do not do so, we're under God's wrath and condemnations. So we're under the requirement of the covenant of works, and we are born under the penalty of the covenant of works. Now we'll see. Christ met both of these things in the covenant of grace. He met the requirement and he paid the penalty. So as we respond to the covenant, meditate in order to perceive the blessed state that God had appointed for the human race. Understand that there was was nothing better in terms of where man was. Then let the punishment and fall be met with your approval. Don't sit here and foolishly think, man, if I'd been, this is not fair, you know, I wish I'd had my chance. Look, if Adam and all of perfection and all that I expelled from the context fell, would you do any better? Are you not better off under a covenant head who had the great possibility of doing this rather than being left yourself under the punishment or under the perpetual perfect obedience? Now, we're going to see how this actually, the covenant of works and the fall were part of God's eternal plan. The covenant of grace isn't plan two. The covenant of grace is eternal. It was God's purpose that Adam break the covenant of works. That'll wake you up, huh? It was God's purpose that Adam would break the covenant of works. We'll try to work that out. But if you're here today and you're trusting your works, your righteousness, you're not resting in Christ alone for your salvation, you are under the condemnation and penalty of this first covenant. And there's no hope for you 
you will go to this eternal damnation unless you repent and take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ through the covenant of grace. All right. I didn't quite get at a quarter to. We have five minutes, though, if there is a question. And take this time, if you need to, go back and use the facilities as well. For we are to press on. Clear as mud, huh? Please, Paul. Right. And then we see who he is, and we really won't have any problem, even though we can't grasp it in an infinite way, with God doing what God pleases to do and how he right. pleases to do it. So right. starting with God and so really meditating in who he is and knowing him is an all important Good. So you all probably already knew all this anyway. Do you understand the covenant of works made with Adam for us? If Adam had obeyed that simple commandment not to eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he and we and him would have had eternal perfect life. He disobeyed, which means he lost communion with God, was corrupt in his nature. We lost communion with God and are corrupt in our nature. And thus we're under God's wrath and condemnation naturally with the responsibility to keep the covenant and under the sanction for not doing so. Yes? If he had obeyed, we don't know exactly what all that eternal life would have looked like we know there had been some period of time when he would have exercised dominion on the earth and propagated it with a godly seed. At some point, at God's appointed time, there would have become a final consummation when there would be no longer any propagation of the human race and we would be in some way uh, transported into that final fellowship with God. But the, the Bible leaves a big veil over exactly. We simply know that he had been justified, adopted, perfect son of God. And all of his descendants would have been. Um, and at some point then, there would have been an end of having families. And we would, uh, in glorified bodies, live with God forever. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's why I said it was probationary. Thank you for asking that. Probationary and limited. The test was only up to that test in the garden, which took place uh, very quickly after creation. If he had obeyed, then the test was over. Um, God doesn't have double jeopardy. And, you know, if you take a test at school and you've completed it, it's completed. So there was no more test. No, he, Adam would have been confirmed in perfection and we would have as well. Thank you for that good clarification. Yes, sir. The grace that, well, if Adam received grace in the garden, 
The grace that Adam had was the grace of God making a covenant with him. What Adam didn't have, and the reason he fell was, is that God did not give him the extra measure of grace necessary to obey. Because God didn't owe it to him. And Adam evidently didn't seek it. And that's how a perfect but mutable person uh, could sin. But there was no grace in him at that point. There was no need for grace in him. But he did need grace. He did need God's help and favor to keep the covenant. And uh, evidently that's what he did not seek. Are you ready to press on? Yes. Okay. Then let's open our Bibles to uh, Jeremiah chapter 31. We'll read verses 31 to 37. Handout number two. Let's have some guys up here to help, please. Thank you. Jeremiah 31, verse 31 to 37. Anybody have access to one? The elder up here needs one. Cecil Paul needs one then you won't have one. If, if somebody's got access to one, you can share, then give one back to the other elder there, huh? We've got another person coming in as well, so... You do. Oh, okay. Well, then give it to the guy that just came in. Well, he went to the bathroom. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Lord, we have uh, rushed through this first covenant transaction to lay the foundation for what we're going to do the rest of this weekend. But I pray that your spirit will help us to retain these essential features. So we move now, Lord, into this glorious covenant of grace by which you have delivered us and keep us. We pray that you'll give us wonderful, comfortable insights into your covenant transaction. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Maybe we'll stand for this, let you get some blood flowing, stand for the reading of Scripture, which, in fact, was the proper posture for reading Scripture throughout the Bible and the history of the church. Jeremiah 31, beginning with verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares Jehovah, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, declares Jehovah. 
But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all they have done, declares the Lord. may be seated. So you remember that a covenant is uh, a sovereignly administered bond with stipulations and sanctions. A binding contract with responsibilities, with promises and threats. And in your notes, I simply repeated there Vitius's definition. Now, I mentioned Robertson's definition, a bond in blood, that's of life and death, sovereignly administered. Throughout the rest of the Bible, this covenant of grace is referred to as a bond. Sometimes there are verses that actually in the same verse will talk about covenant and oath uh, simply as synonyms. Uh, this bond is an oath that God has sworn by himself, he says in, in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, and it, it cannot be broken. So straight through, we've got God swearing um, to do something, and by blood. So I mentioned that the primary verb is cut a covenant. And the explanation of that is actually found for us in uh, Genesis chapter 15. So God comes to make this covenant with uh, Abraham, and Abraham is saying, you know, I'm in great trouble now, and God says, nobody's going to harm you. He says, but you promised me this offspring, and I don't have it, and so God takes him outside in verse 5, says, look at the heavens and count the stars if you're able, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed the Lord, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he said to him, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the earth of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him. He cut them in two, laid each half opposite the other. He did not cut the birds. Then the birds of prey came down, and Abram in his vision had to drive them away. Then we read that God comes down in what we call a theophany. So he came down, uh, Abram in this deep sleep, uh, in the form of a smoking oven and a flaming torch, and God passed between the pieces. Now that is profound. The idea of passing between the slain animals was an oath of malediction. So the covenant maker, or covenant 
with whom it was made would say as he passes through, if I break this covenant, let the curses come upon me. Let me be destroyed. Now, it was our responsibility to walk between the slain animals. It was Abraham's responsibility to walk between the slain animals. But you see, God passes through the slain animals. Here we have these two aspects of the covenant coming together. And that is, it's by the shedding of blood, and thus we have covenants that they're made, that people pass between the animals, uh, Abraham and Abimelech and Laban and Jacob and whatever. Um, But God here passes through the slain animals to say, let this curse come upon me. That, you see, is the beauty of the covenant of grace. So the covenant is cut. It's of life and blood. Uh, And God is the one that's going to guarantee that the covenant is kept. But it will have stipulations for us. We're to enter into the covenant by faith. If we refuse to do so, we're under God's eternal damnation. If we enter in by faith, then we have that eternal life uh, that has been purchased for us in Christ. So the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace is the covenant of works was dependent upon a man. The covenant of grace is dependent upon the God-man. The covenant of works, man had to meet the conditions. In the covenant of grace, the God-man had to meet the conditions on our behalf. But he had to do so because I already said both the responsibility to obey God perfectly and the punishment for not obeying God perfectly continue. But that was part of the transaction because when I said this was God's eternal plan, now Christ would come, and we're going to come back to this, Christ would come and he is the second covenant head would meet all of the demands of the first covenant and pay the penalty of the first covenant. And that is what is worked out in the covenant of grace. Now, the covenant of grace um, is defined for us as well in paragraph 7, chapter 7, paragraph 3. Man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained to eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. So the covenant of works, the background, the covenant of grace is the reality. But notice it says, commonly called the covenant of grace. But you'll never find that expression in the Bible. And there are those that say we really should not talk about the covenant of grace. There's a lot of confusion today. So people who are erring into serious Turn into serious error. We'll talk about there's just one covenant. The covenant made with Adam is the covenant that's made with us. We have it by faithful obedience. Adam failed, but we can enjoy the covenant by faithful obedience. And of course, by Christ, our sins are pardoned. But even though the term is not found in Scripture, and there are other terms not found in Scripture as well. Think of the term Trinity. The term Trinity is not found in the Bible. 
uh, but it is a, a perfect word uh, to uh, summarize the doctrine of one God and three persons, three persons who are one God. Now, there are a number of reasons that we would refer to this as the covenant of grace. Um, it flows from God's grace. There was nothing in us that deserved it. We only deserved condemnation. But God, out of his grace, uh, brings us uh, this covenant. Um, the terms of the covenant are all of grace. We don't have to do anything in order to fulfill uh, the covenant. The purpose of the covenant are to exalt God's grace. And so it's placarded. And he says in Ephesians 4 that the angels then might see the wisdom of God uh, through uh, the church. Everything about it shouts grace. It is undeserved. It has flowed to us uh, out of God's uh, wonderful love. Burkhoff defines it, the covenant of grace may be defined as that gracious agreement between the offended God and the offending but elect sinner, in which God promises salvation through faith in Christ, and the sinner accepts this believingly, promising a life of faith and obedience. Well, as a covenant, it has a number of characteristics that are very comforting for you to know and to keep in mind. I've listed them for you. It's Trinitarian, just as the first covenant was Trinitarian. God is a trinity. God does not act uh, but in all three persons. Now, each person will have specific responsibilities, but all act in every act of the Godhead. So the covenant is Trinitarian. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. It's eternal. So this covenant was made in eternity. So when I say that it was God's purpose that the covenant of works be broken, it is part of the unfolding of this marvelous eternal plan of salvation. You need to understand. Now, when I say it was God's will that Adam fall, it's not something God saw Adam would do and permitted. No. Now, there is a permissive aspect to the will of God, and that is God intended Adam to fall. He left him then to his own devices so he would fall. That's different from permission. Saying, well, yeah, he's going to fall. I got to do something else. No. It was part of God's plan because it's in this glorious covenant of grace that all of the beauty and splendor and majesty of God is revealed. You think about Calvary. Mount Calvary at the cross is a gigantic, it's a cosmic magnifying glass. Every one of God's moral attributes is focused in that one event. It's the only time in all of history or eternity that can be, if you stop and think about it. Um, when God's grace is revealed, historically or in heaven, God's wrath's not revealed, is it? And when God's wrath's revealed in, in punishments, temporal and eternal, grace isn't revealed, is it? That's just two examples. There, where mercy and justice kiss. There, where every one of God's attributes is involved, moral attributes in that one transaction the beauty and splendor of all God is, is placarded. And that's all part of the plan. The whole plan of redemption was not simply to have a people for himself. 
but to have a people for himself to his own glory. That's why God saved you. Not to keep you from going to hell. He saves you to make you part of the people for his own glory. And those people live within the covenant relationship with God. That's the eternal plan. That is the important characteristic of this covenant of grace. It's not plan B. No, it is eternal. It's particular. We read in Burkhoff that it's with elect sinners. So God chose us in Christ and administers that election through the covenant. Election came first. It's kind of, again, individuals brought into a community because God deals with us in a community, not simply as individuals, just as he deals with you in a family, not just as individuals. Election is then administered in covenant community, which is the church, as we will see by God's grace tomorrow morning. I've already mentioned it's gracious. Uh, it's conditional. Now, in the church, there was a lot of discussion about this, particularly after what we call remonstrant Arminianism, which was the daddy of modern-day Arminianism, uh, that put all these conditions on people uh, to be saved. And so, there was, a, was the covenant of grace conditional or unconditional? Yes. <laughs> now, how do you answer an either-or question? Yes. It was conditional because... The Lord Jesus Christ, the covenant head, had to meet all the conditions of the broken covenant, as I've already said. Obedience and suffering, death, burial, resurrection. It's conditional in terms of you and I enter into that covenant by repentance and faith, continue in that covenant by faithful obedience. Now, faithful obedience does not justify you. Justification is what you receive by faith as you enter into the covenant, but your covenant relationship involves obedience. Thus that hymn, trust and obey for there's no other way, really is true. Once you're in the covenant with God, you are to be a covenant keeper by obedience, faith and obedience, or you'll be a covenant breaker. And it's sovereign, as we've already seen. Sovereignly administered bond, or a bond uh, in blood, life and death. Uh, This is of God's initiative It was God's will to uh, save, to elect, and to work this out within the covenant. And I've already said it demands then a human response. Well, you saw Vitzius' definition of covenant in general. Here's his definition of covenant of grace, which I really like. The covenant of grace is a compact or agreement between God and the elect sinner. God, on his part, declaring his free goodwill concerning eternal salvation and everything relative thereto freely to be given to those in covenant by and for the mediator Christ, man on his part consenting to that goodwill by a sincere faith. So that is the covenant of grace. Well, again, covenants have parties. And we see here the parties in the covenant of grace. Uh, Larger Catechism 31, page 943. With whom was the covenant of grace made? The covenant of grace was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him with all the elect as his seed. Now, Christ as the first covenant head, of course, is the eternal Son of God. 
This covenant, we've said, is eternal. Now, I'm going to give you a little more theology here. This is normally referred to, really by all parties, as a covenant of redemption. But there's two ways it's been looked at. Some will say there's actually two covenants in the covenant of grace. The covenant of redemption made within the Godhead, and the covenant of grace then made with us through Christ incarnate. Uh, what our catechism says is that there is this eternal aspect of the covenant of grace, because the covenant of grace was made with Christ in eternity and his elect in him. Now, that's how I'm going to unpack this. At the end of the day, whether you, as we get to what that means, you'd have two different transactions there or one. It doesn't make a great deal of difference. Now, the important thing to grasp is, is that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, entered into a covenant with God the Son in prospect of his becoming incarnate. Now here's the Son making a covenant with himself because he's part of the Godhead. And he is part of who elected, and he is the elected one. One of the glorious incomprehensibilities of our God. But God the Son, uh, in prospect of becoming taking to himself a human nature, entered into a covenant transaction with the triune God in order to deliver his elect people from their sin. So remember, we were chosen in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1. In order to accomplish that, Christ then gave himself um, to become incarnate and as the God-man perfectly to accomplish our redemption. So he is the eternal party in this covenant. Then the elect in him are brought into the covenant. Thus he is the head of the covenant, as Adam was the head of the first covenant. He's the mediator, he's the surety, he's the guarantor, he's the administrator of the covenant. So, what does this mean, that Christ then is the head and mediator. Well, he was sent to do the Father's will. Isaiah 42, 6. He's called himself the covenant to the people. In Malachi 3, 1. He is called the angel, the messenger of the covenant. And I give you these other scriptures here that simply speak of this eternal transaction. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He's going to be given the spirit. Isaiah 53 is actually the treatise about the whole transaction. We, we know how the gospel is so gloriously portrayed here, how the Savior in his humiliation saves us. But look at verses 10 and 11. You get this eternal aspect. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. The if takes us back to a transaction. The triune God was pleased to render him, um, if, uh, uh, to crush him, if he would render himself a guilt offering, then he would see his seed, his offspring, prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, that's God the Son incarnate, will justify many and will bear their iniquities, as he will bear their iniquities. So here's this relationship to this eternal transaction 
with its promise that we're going to unpack here in just a moment. So Christ was rewarded. So in this high priestly prayer in John 17, he claims now that which the Father had promised to him. For himself first, and then for us later in that prayer. Verses 6, 9, and 24. Now in eternity, the cut was made with Christ and his elect in him. So Titus 1, 2. Now, this might seem esoteric right now, but in a minute you're going to see how glorious this truth works out practically. Titus 1, 2, that um, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the present, at the proper time manifested even in his word. So, uh, back, let's do verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, the knowledge of the truth according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. Long ages ago means eternity. So there was a promise made to us in eternity. Now how was the promise made to you in eternity? It was made to Christ, your covenant head for you. So 2 Timothy 1.9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Do you see how this covenant is made with Christ in eternity and is elect in him? I want you to grasp this. That when this covenant was made, every one of you, if you are a Christian today, you were on the mind of God, the triune God who chose you. You are on the mind of Christ who at that point gave himself to become incarnate and purchase your salvation. Let that sink in. There's no greater comfort in all of the Bible. Well, what does this mean? Now, it says summary lecture, and that just got pulled out for some other notes. But what what does this eternal transaction mean? Well, let's see. As I've already said, the covenant of works remains in force. It's inexorable demands. It's inflexible penalty. The second covenant could not be established but by an exact compliance with the requisites of the first. God doesn't change. You understand that? The only way that a person can be saved is by obeying God perfectly. You have done that in Christ your covenant head. That's the beauty of this transaction. So the Father, on behalf of the Godhead, and God the Son, in anticipation of being mediator, representing all his elect, and as the administrator of the covenant, acted as surety for them. Now, how does this work out? Now, this, how many times have you had a talk to a Jehovah's Witness or some, even around here, these United Pentecostals or whatever, everybody denies the deity of Christ, and they go where? They go to the Gospel of John, where he's always talking about being in obedience to the Father. This is why I say this is so practical. Well, who is speaking in the Gospel of John? It's the incarnate Savior who entered into a state of humiliation in order to fulfill this inexorable and inflexible demands of the covenant of works that had to be fulfilled by a human, but he had to be a divine being to give it eternal efficacy. So when the Savior talks about obeying the Father, that's exactly what his role was 
as God incarnate. That's not who he is as the eternal son of God. And there's sufficient scripture to establish that he is the eternal son of God. But as the Christ, and see that you, I know we kind of lazily use the word of him, he was not the Christ until he was incarnate and actually when he was anointed prophet, priest, and king. In eternity, uh, he was not the Christ. He was the Logos, second person of the Godhead. Uh, in the Old Testament, he was the Christ anticipated, but personally, he was still the Logos, second person of the Godhead. It's when he personally took to himself a human nature, entered into the state of, of humiliation, that he is the Christ. And he came as the Christ then to do what? To fulfill this covenant. So what's the work of the Father representing the Godhead? Conditions are given to the Son with a commandment to fulfill them. John twelve forty nine and 50 and 10, 18. He's come to do the will of the Father. So that means he would take to himself a human nature. Hebrews ten five, Made in that nature without sin. Um, Romans 8, uh, uh, Hebrews 2 um, and 4. That uh, as the God-man, he would act on behalf of his elect people, so he was made under the law. Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, who was made, born of a virgin, made under, a woman made under the law. Now, how in the world is the second person that God had made under the law? Because he came as the covenant keeper, which means he had to fulfill the law in a much different way. The law is who he is. But now he's come as a mediator, and he must obey the law and all of its comprehensiveness, all of its demands, and in paying its penalty as well. So he came uh, in this with the commandment that he then, as the God-man, would act on behalf of his people. Bear the punishment of their sin. Lay down his life for us, John ten eighteen, Fulfills all righteousness to make us righteous. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We make the elect partake of his merited salvation by declaring gospel to them. And so in John 6, he's the one who raises us up on the last day. Matthew 28, all authority is given to him. Now go, gather the nations. Acts 2.33, he's in heaven. He's poured out his Holy Spirit. So this is the, these are the conditions. We talked about conditions of the covenant. These are the conditions that Christ had to meet in order for the covenant of grace to be effective. But promises then, as we saw in... Um, Isaiah 53, uh, were made uh, to him. Uh, and um, such promises, God would prepare him for his work. So God would provide him a human nature, Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. He would have supernatural endowments by which nature, his nature, human nature, would be fitted for the discharge of his duty, Isaiah 11, 2 and 3. He would have an abundant communication of the Holy Spirit, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. He would be given this threefold office in his anointing, his baptism, uh, as prophet, priest, and king. Because Adam, I, I, I briefly talked about him being priest, but Adam was prophet, priest, and king in the garden. Remember, he had dominion. He had the priestly responsibility of the garden. He had the prophetic responsibility of God to declare, uh, know and declare God's will. When he lost that, 
that means we lost knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Christ then comes as prophet, priest, and king to restore to us knowledge, prophet, righteousness, priest, holiness, king. So it's all part, and this is wonderfully worked out. We don't have time today, but in the confession, uh, in the catechisms, worked out uh, how he fulfilled these offices and what that means to us then, that Christ, in the state of both humiliation and now exaltation, is our prophet, priest, and king. So he is, uh, God prepares him by anointing him into these offices. Then he promises Christ to support him in his work, to uphold his nature, Isaiah 43, 1 through 5. And, you know, you have to realize this is part of the incarnation as well because human nature would have completely collapsed under the punishment of the cross, of the hell-bearing of Christ. There's no way that his human nature could have withstood that. But he was always upheld by his divine nature and by the Holy Spirit as God opposed him in his work. Christ himself would depend upon the promises of God in difficult occasions. So in Matthew 10:34, John 16:32, um, prophesied in Isaiah 50 verse 7. And then he would see the salvation of his elect. That was a grand promise to him. So what does the writer of Hebrews say? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew that he had this reward, and that would be the salvation of his people. Or ask of me, and I shall make the nations your inheritance, uttermost ends of the earth your possession. And he would be invested then, finally, with honor and power. He'd go back into his exaltation. So Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Psalm 89, 27, as he is exalted. 72, 8, the king to whom the nations are given. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, the glorious exaltation of the Savior. Both now he is exalted as king and in eternity. He now is the judge of heaven and earth. John 5, 27. And he will be, as Paul says to the Athenians in Acts 17.31. Anticipating where we're going this afternoon, that um, uh, Christ is king. The kingdom has not been postponed. He's king now. He's judge now. He's on the throne now. And he'll be on this throne uh, forever. So these are the commandments given to Christ. Now the promise is given to Christ. And then the promise is given to the elect in Christ that we will be received, Titus 1-2, in the elect justified one, and we then will be justified. And we then will receive all the benefits of the covenant of grace, which begins with regeneration, because we of our own dead natures could not come to God. Regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance. Remember that glorious larger catechism 36 What are the benefits that accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which accompany or flow from those three things are assurance of God's love, joy in the Holy Spirit, assurance of salvation, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase in grace and perseverance therein to the end. That's all been fulfilled by Christ. None of that is left on your plate. You don't sanctify yourself. 
You don't keep yourself. Now, we talk about perseverance of the saints because you'll have a responsibility. But if Christ is in you by his spirit, he's going to enable you to fulfill that responsibility. And so it is all ours in this glorious covenant transaction with the covenant head. So that's the the commandments given to the Son, the promises to the Son for him and for us. Now, what was the work of the Son? Well, he assented in eternity to these conditions. He assumed them with full joy. So we've got this great statement in Psalm 40, uh, verse 6, that then is quoted in uh, Hebrews. And one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is they help you, they take us into the, the mind and the emotions and the thoughts of the Savior. So, of course, Psalm 22. Here's what the Savior is feeling and thinking as he hangs on the cross. But here's what he was thinking when he took to himself a human nature in Psalm 40, uh, verse 6. Sacrifice and meal offering you've not desired. My ears you have opened. And the Septuagint says, a body you have prepared for me. And that's what the writer of Hebrews quotes. Burnt offering and sin offering you've not required. Then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book of, uh, in the scroll of the book is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim glad tidings of the righteousness of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. So here we have our Savior assenting to these conditions, declaring that through the psalmist as he came into the world, as he entered into um, the womb of the Virgin Mary and took to himself a human nature. These were the words that were on his mind because he ascended in eternity to these conditions. So he then united the two natures in the one person. So not only is he the fit covenant head, the one in whom all of us are represented and saved, but he then is the mediator of the covenant, the one who stands between God and man. He is the surety of the covenant, the one who guarantees for us that all the demands of obedience and all the punishment, both temporal and eternal, are satisfied. He thus, as I said, was born under the law. He kept the law perfectly, and he paid the penalty on more than one occasion. Remember how he challenges his enemies. You know, any of you can convict me of sin. I've come to do the will of the Father. I will not change one jot or tittle of the law, Matthew five seventeen and 18. All those references in John, John 9, 4 and 5 and eight twenty nine to doing the will of the Father. That is what our Savior did what he, uh, as he came to earth, what he consented to do and what he did. He also accepted the promises. So we talked about the promises, but he strengthened himself by those promises. So as I mentioned in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He could only look ahead to what God had promised. And in respect to that, he actually used the sacraments. And there's an interesting discussion of that in John Brown of Haddington. He wouldn't use them the way a sinner would use them, but he would use them because the sacraments of even in the Old Covenant, as well as the New Covenant sacraments, would be pointing to what he was doing. And so the circumcision and Passover and baptism and Lord's Supper all spoke of him and spoke to him of the promises that were his when he fulfilled what was predicted in those sacraments. 
reconfirmed then the certainty of the promises and gave him a, a sweet foretaste of uh, what was signified in those sacraments and rekindled and quickened his approbation of the conditions of the covenant as well as the promises to fulfill them. So even as you, and we'll get Lord willing this afternoon to the sacraments, even as you use the sacraments, remember the Savior used the sacraments and paved the way for you to understand how to use the sacraments. And then he demanded fulfillment of the promises for himself and for his elect. So for himself in John 17, this begins that great prayer that we refer to as the, as the high priestly prayer. But uh, you look at the languages in, language in verses 4 and 5. I've glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see, he's now, he's not bargaining with God. He's simply, as the covenant head, saying, I've done it. Now restore to me that which uh, you've promised to me in the covenant. And then, of course, uh, for us, in John 17, 24, he says to the Father, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. There it's all put together for us, isn't it? This eternal transaction, this love, people given to him, elect, chosen in him, now he's claiming the promise. Everyone then for whom he died, everyone for whom he obeyed will be saved. It's impossibility to have any kind of eternal covenant transaction and not have particular redemption. I know some of you might wrestle with that. But do you see this? How in the world could he say that if he had not fulfilled all the conditions necessary for them? And everyone for whom he fulfilled the conditions, well, he said they were given to me. Now, Father, you give them that eternal life that you promised. Okay, he's not bargaining. It's simply covenant terms. They were laid down by the triune God. He accepted them as God the Son incarnate. He's fulfilled it. Now he's asked for it. And of course, he himself accomplished it. But the Spirit is also busy in this work. The Spirit prepared the human nature in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And by the way, this is in a whole other lecture, but Christ received a human nature, not a human person. This would get rid of a lot of confusion if you understood that the God-man, the person, took to himself a human nature. So as our confession says, he is one person with two natures. And that just goes all through the problems that the early church had, uh, our modern heretics have as well. He assumed a human nature. The spirit then took from the human nature of Mary and created a human nature, a body and soul for the Savior. The spirit anointed him and empowered him. He lived by the power of the spirit. Yes, he was a divine man, but as the mediator, he lived in constant dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The spirit gave him power. He worked his miracles head by the finger of God, which is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit sustained him in all that he did, sustained him then in the garden, sustained him on the cross, kept him in the grave from deterioration as God had promised, 
and the triune God raised him from the dead. And as we'll see, the Spirit then, Christ to the Spirit, is erecting his church. And, and the important thing we're going to see, Lord willing, tomorrow, is the church is not an afterthought. The church is all a part of this eternal transaction. And, of course, the Spirit regenerates and sanctifies the elect. So, I've spent time here. I want you to grasp the eternal nature of this glorious covenant of grace because it's unbreakable. It's unbreakable because our covenant head has done everything for us. And so here we, we see the, the perfect unity of God's plan of salvation. It's the best interpretation of the roles of Christ, both the federal principle that he's the head, that he's the surety, that he's the administrator, and uh, we see the full scope of the saving purposes of God's work in Christ, that not just to keep us from punishment, but to make us holy image bearers. And also, I've already mentioned how the Psalms refer to Christ, and actually, every Psalm is about Christ in one way or the other. In three ways, there are some that are simply prophecies of Christ and no one else. There are many that are typical, where David say, uh, Psalm 110 or whatever is a type of Christ in his own experiences. But if you look how the New Testament quotes the Psalms, there are Psalms that say nothing about Christ that are applied to him because he is the righteous man. So Psalm 1 and 2 introduce the Psalter. Psalm 1, the righteous man. Psalm 2, that he is God's anointed redeemer. So you may pray those things and you may feel those things and you can express your own lamentations because of this eternal transaction. And because Christ is for you. Christ speaks in the Psalms as your Savior. That you may take those words to comfort yourself and speak with them as well. Well, the promise then is the great promise that we will look at more in the next hour. And that is, I will be your God and you'll be my people. You know that promise runs straight through? From Genesis 17:7 to Revelation. In every epic and administration of God's saving activity of his covenant. And it's put together, we're going to come to this later, so I won't do it now, in, in 2 Corinthians 6. Uh, the conclusion of that chapter. It is beautiful. That's where we're going to start after, after uh, lunch. But that's this great promise with all that makes that necessary. For God to be your God then, you to be his people, your sins must be pardoned. That's promised. You must have the Holy Spirit. That's promised. You must be justified. That's promised. You must be sanctified. That's promised. With all the temporal promises as well that belong to us in Christ Jesus. We have the seals. We'll talk about those the last hour today. Uh, and then we've talked about the conditions that we have uh, in Christ. Everything fulfilled. But we must take hold of Christ and we must obey the covenant law. Again, if you understand covenant, you understand the role of law in your life. Christ then is administering the covenant through his church uh, today, and we'll deal with that tomorrow. So again, in this racing lecture, I hope you can see the beauty of covenant theology. If I've done nothing else, this glorious eternal transaction flowing out of the grace and love of God, the wisdom of God, the perfection of this means of salvation. Thus, you are to rest in this covenant. Your salvation cannot be lost. 
Get off the treadmill of trying to earn God's favor. You don't obey to get God's favor. You obey out of gratitude within the confines of a covenant where God has done everything and promised you everything that you need. You lack nothing, nothing in your life as a Christian for sanctification, for dying to sin, for growing in holiness, for being conformed to the image of God. Understand that. Rest in it. If you wrestle with assurance of salvation, here's where you turn. You don't turn to yourself. You turn to the covenant. What God has sworn to do uh, by Christ for you. Now, do you see him at work in your life? Do you see him doing those things that he's commanded to do? Then you rest in him by the Spirit. And then in evangelism. This is what we're really missing today. You know, when you talk to a person... You know what you ought to tell them? Do you want to be saved and go to heaven? Then you must obey all of God's laws. You cannot be saved if you don't. Did you know that? You cannot be saved if you do not keep all of God's laws. Have I turned into a legalist? A heretic? That's, that's the command of God. It doesn't change, does it? God doesn't change. But Christ The covenant head has obeyed the law of God perfectly for all those who will trust in him. But apart from him, you must love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength if you expect to go to heaven. Now tell me, have you done that? It's a great way. It's how the Puritans used to do it. You start there with the demands of the covenant of works because they haven't changed. Then you show how they've changed in Christ. And then be sure for each of you today that you know that you've come to God through the terms he's laid down. You've come to God through the covenant of grace. Entering into that by repentance and faith and resting in God alone for eternal security. All right. A little more time now for questions. We've got 10 minutes. A little louder, Kurt. There's a strange thing that Jesus does in his lifetime, like getting baptized and, and, right. and circumcision and such. Um, as the fulfiller of the law for us and imputing his righteousness to us, that explains those events. Is that correct? Yes, in part. But it's also, uh, in his circumcision, he was fulfilling the law that he was demanded to do, but he also was fulfilling circumcision. Because circumcision was, at the end of the day, all about Christ being cut off uh, for sin. And so he actually uh, was fulfilling the commandments of the law, but he was fulfilling the, the type of circumcision, that he who is the firstborn uh, is cut off. Same in his baptism, that he is then fulfilling in baptism that which he is going to accomplish for us. So yes, he has to obey, but he also, through those things, is manifesting more of his own work. But it's not signifying a washing away of sin for him. No. I said that earlier. There's no sin of his, thank you for repeating it though, there's no sin of his involved. But he, he had the types, he had the, 
Actually, because he knew the promises, he had the comfort of the promises that was signified in circumcision and baptism and the, the Passover of the Lord's Supper because he knew what they were pointing to and he had received those promises. Forty. Our ears opened or dug has a twofold significance. It's kind of uh, what we call a double entendre, means can mean more than one thing. So to have an ear pierced was the, the bond slave, but to have an ear, he had to receive a body. And that's why the Septuagint then says, a body you prepared for me, so my ear could be dug. And that's why the writer of the Hebrews then quotes the Septuagint, the Greek translation, a body you have prepared for me. But it means both things. Uh, It's not a contradiction there. It's just that to have an ear to be dug or pierced, he had, or actually a dug ear could also refer to the the making of an ear. Uh, But uh, he had to have a, a body made for him. So that's the promise of the incarnation. So it's the body. You prepared for me. Yeah. And that's what's quoted then in Hebrews. Chapter 10, verse 5. Sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. So they're quoting, and, and the, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostles would quote the Septuagint when it was getting to the real messianic nature of the promises. And as, as I said, there's no contradiction there, because to have an ear dug, you had to receive an ear. Yeah. We'll come to that, Lord willing, right after lunch. That's where we're where we're going. You can ask questions about the first hour as well if you want to. We still have five minutes. Kurt. All right, good. There are two covenants. There's the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. There are those in Reformed history, and many today, who will say the covenant of grace was based upon another covenant, which was the covenant of redemption. Now, the facts of that are what I've explained, and what was commanded, promised, performed. Um, That was more in the Dutch church, where the Scots looked more in terms of a covenant of grace that had an eternal aspect. And that's how I presented it. But either one is orthodox. It's just a matter of whether you uh, want to think of an eternal covenant in the Godhead that's the basis of the temporal covenant of grace or the covenant of grace that was made in the Godhead and also in time with the elect. The other many covenants will deal with the next hour and that is the covenant of grace had many different administrations, but it was only one covenant of grace. So we've got 
the framework from which I'm operating is we have two covenants, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. The covenant of grace has two aspects, an eternal aspect where the, um, God the Son in prospect of incarnation pledges himself, the Father commands him, all that we worked out, and that's made with the elect who were chosen in him. So just as Adam was our covenant head in the covenant of works, Christ is our covenant head from eternity in the covenant of grace. And he then federally represents all who were his, which also helps you understand the use of all in, for example, in Romans 5, where all were condemned in Adam and all were uh, received righteous in Christ. All those for whom Adam acted were condemned. All those for whom Christ acted were redeemed, but he acted for the elect given to him in eternity. So two covenants, works and grace. Covenant of grace administered, as we'll talk about in the next hour, these various administrations that unfold in the scripture. Okay, Mark, you yeah. say something? You can do something.